Our scripture today is from Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, and 13 to 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people, hide, uh, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, and as you're seating, let me invite you to pray along with me as you prepare to hear from the Word of God. Father, we, uh, we want to thank you right now. I want to thank you that you haven't left us by ourselves in this world, but that you've revealed to us your Word. You've revealed to us yourself perfectly through Jesus Christ. Father, help us now to hear from your word, to hear from the testimony about Jesus, from the words that he spoke, to know what is good and right and pure and beautiful, what is true and flourishing life. Would you change us to become more and more like Jesus, to know his love more deeply, to be prepared to to share it more fervently with joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has begun that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with this introduction full of these statements, these eight statements called the Beatitudes. And these eight statements are these statements of blessing describing the flourishing life that all of us as human beings long for. How can we live? How can we find the happy and the flourishing life? Jesus wants to to show us and invite us into the, the way of blessing. This is the blessed life to become a follower of Jesus. To become a disciple of Jesus. To come and to submit to him as the king, as King Jesus. As our Lord and as our ruler. And to find true life as we follow him. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's inviting us into in the Beatitudes. And each statement so far has been pretty surprising. We've said that a lot. I'm going to say it again. It's been surprising, haven't they? Challenging statements. Because the statements of blessing that Jesus speaks of, they confront what we would usually think of, maybe in our own lives, as the way to find blessing and flourishing. They're not what we might think, but he calls us to something more surprising as followers of Jesus Christ. But the last statement, the last blessed statement that Jesus made in this series, I think it was the most surprising of all. Of all. Am I right? The statement that says that Jesus says the blessed person is a persecuted person. That's surprising. That's confrontational to us. But to these persecuted people, Jesus says, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Suffering for me is going to be blessing and flourishing beyond your wildest imagination. Whatever loss you experience for my sake will be worth it a million fold when I come and my kingdom is in its fullness on this earth. It's blessing. It's true blessing. The reward will be great. 
But even as we read that, even as we marvel at the way that we're to rejoice as we're persecuted as followers of Jesus, I think we're, we're, we're struck by something. We think, okay, is that it? Am I to live my life then here on earth, enduring suffering and struggling simply with a hope that, that one day in the future I'll have a reward? Right? Can I just endure the long period of persecution and then there's just a reward at the end? I get through this stuff. It's going to be rough, but at the end, it's going to be great. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, he's saying a lot more than that. Jesus goes on in this now, the conclusion to his introduction in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, by telling his disciples not just about persecution and reward, but also about the incredible purpose, the incredible mission that they have as Jesus' followers in this world. You see, Jesus, not, Jesus speaks not only of a glorious reward, but also of this incredible purpose and mission that he has given us, that we get to be part of as we follow him in this world. So that's what we're going to get on to today. We're going to look at that purpose. We're going to look at that um, mission that Jesus has given. And as we do so, we're going to unpack three points quite simply. We're going to look at what salt is, what light is, and then how Jesus talks about the glory of God. So salt, light, and the glory of God are our three points this morning. We're going to jump in and unpack it together. So look first at that first, that first point in Jesus' words in the beginning of verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? We're going to explain it a little bit more deeply in a second, but this whole statement about salt and this statement about light, together they're communicating one big idea to the followers of Jesus the disciples of Jesus. And the one big idea that they're both communicating together is this. Jesus is saying that his followers are the people that he has called to publicly live out in this world the whole person righteousness of Jesus. It's a statement about mission, about purpose, about who the disciples are. They're called to be his witnesses as those that publicly live out the whole person righteousness of Jesus Christ in this world. That's what they're called to. That's what both these statements describe, the, the statement on salt and the statement on light. But here we're going to focus in on, on salt. We want to understand why does Jesus zero in on salt here? What's he talking about? What is that part of the metaphor? What does that metaphor exactly mean? There's differences among Bible scholars on this point. Uh, there's not a total alignment, and there's a number of things that are said about what salt means. Um, it's part of that larger thing I'm describing about being a witness in this particular way, but publicly living out the righteousness of Jesus in this world. But at least one aspect that's unique to salt is this, is this. Salt has a preservative function. You and I live in a world that's full of refrigeration, right? We can buy beef that's literally grown uh, thousands of miles away. And it can come to us and we can put it in our own refrigerators and eat it later. And it doesn't go rancid. We live in a world where we can keep our vegetables safe in the icebox, in the refrigerator. But in a world without refrigerators, salt had this incredibly important function to be a preservative. You cured things with it. You pickled things with it. If you harvested vegetables in summertime and you wanted to eat them in January... You had to do something with those vegetables to preserve them so they could be eaten out of season. We don't really think much of that now because we want strawberries growing out of season. We just get them from California. It's a different world. It's a different world. Salt had this preservation uh, function in that society. And I I remember um, 
in my own life, some instances of this, I, I think we all kind of have some understanding of this, even though we live in a modern world of this pres- preservation uh, function of salt. But in my own life, I remember pretty distinctly growing up on an ostrich farm. So I grew up on an ostrich farm. I know I thought I'd get a response. Uh, <clears throat> I grew up on an ostrich farm. It's true. My dad had this crazy idea that we should have ostriches and it was going to be great. And I remember that one of our barns growing up in that ostrich farm uh, was a barn that had rows of five-gallon pails along the side of the wall. And those five-gallon pills, it's a bit, a bit gross in some ways, but it just it's what comes to my mind when I think of the preservation function of salt. Those five-gallon pails were filled with salt and ostrich hide. With salt and ostrich hide because the ostrich hide was being cured to be prepared to be made into leather. Very expensive leather. Ostrich leather at that time, I don't know what now, but it was something that was very, very expensive. And it was one of the products that you used if you had an ostrich farm. So they had this, this preservation function. The thing is, in the ancient world, they got this well because they knew that if you wanted to eat your goat uh, beyond the day that you first slaughtered it, you would have to cure it. You would have to cure it with salt. So if Jesus tells us that salt preserves and that we're the salt of the earth, the question for us is, what is he getting at then? What's he getting at? What is he telling his followers? Well, here's the shocking implication of Jesus' words. He's saying that this world isn't okay. He's saying that on its own, this world isn't getting better. It's not becoming more loving and good and righteous, but rancid. Jesus is saying that on its own, this world is headed towards putrefaction. It putrefies. And he's saying that the preservative that keeps it from going all the way bad is the presence of Jesus' followers publicly living out the whole person righteousness of Christ in this world. The preservation function of his followers is that they they live out the righteousness of Jesus in this world publicly for those around to see. The shocking thing here is that Jesus' opinion about humanity is not the opinion shared by social media influencers that you might see. It's not the opinion that maybe of your therapist. It's different. It's not the opinion of of the, the CBC or columnists that you read. He doesn't think that we're naturally good and getting better. He thinks that we are naturally bad and getting worse. That's shocking. That's shocking. You know, I was talking to a woman just a couple weeks ago, and um, I had the opportunity to start to share the gospel with her. And it was this incredible moment. She looks at me and says, wait a second. You're saying, you're saying that we're not good. Like, Do you mean that? She says, you're saying that there's something wrong in us. Do you, is that what you're talking about? I, was like, I said, yes. I said, that's what the Bible teaches. And it's not just Jesus who thinks that. He's not alone in that opinion. He's not the, the pessimistic uncle of Scripture. Is that all of Scripture, all of Scripture speaks this same message. For example, if you go back and look at the story of mankind in the book of Genesis, as, as you get things off, it's amazing how the story of mankind, it starts off with a precipitous decline. In Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, God creates mankind creates Adam and Eve, and he loves them. He lives with them. He's brought them into a relationship with himself, and he asks them to trust him and to obey him. But they don't. They distrust him. They say, I don't know if your, your plans and purpose for us, God, I don't know if those are good. So I'm going to distrust you, and I'm going to go do something different. They reject him, and they're, they're brought into a broken relationship where they're separated from God. 
And in the pages following, in literally the paragraphs following that account, we read of the first murder in Scripture, where the children of Adam and Eve kill, where Cain kills his brother Abel. But it gets worse from there because in the following paragraphs, just a couple paragraphs after that, Cain's great-grandson, a man named Lamech, he brags about how much worse he is than his great-grandfather. And he says in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. I mean, don't cross that guy, right? <laughs> this is a vengeful, angry man who's boastful about his murdering. And then only a chapter later in Genesis 5, at towards the end, things get so bad that we read that God even says that he regrets that he made mankind in the first place. Jesus doesn't think that we are good people in need of a little improvement. Jesus thinks we are corrupt people in need of a radical salvation that only he can bring. Is that shocking to you? It was shocking to the woman that I spoke with a few weeks ago. But despite how surprising this may be to you, I think it's more apparent than you actually realize. I think, I think you know it. I think you know it. I think that you know what's in your own heart. If you give it time to pause and to think, I think you know what your attitude really is towards others. You might have nice ideas about loving selflessly, but the reality is that you tend to live selfishly. I think you know what comes out of you when you're around your family member or that old friend or that person and you change. Something, something's different. And maybe you say, oh, they just, it's, not, it's not who I am, it's just them. But here's the thing. When you're in those situations, it's not that, it's not that those people make you sin. It's that their presence and that, that trial and relationship, it brings out the sin that's inside of you. It's like, it's like bumping this cup. If I bump this cup, right? The bumps, the bumps strike the cup, but it just shows what's inside of it, right? The hardship and the trials and the, and the difficult relationships, they expose what's really going on inside of us. It shows what's happening inside. I think you know that this world's broken. I think that you remember that the last century was a century where we as humankind killed or murdered 230 million people. I think you know that your own heart towards God is not good. I think that you know that despite his love and his care for us today, even sustaining our every breath this moment in this church, despite his kindness to us, that we don't naturally want to worship him and follow him and give thanks to him and praise him and adore him and submit to him. That naturally we want to turn away from him. Naturally, we, we distrust him. We say, God, I don't know if your way is the best way. I'm going to be like Adam and Eve. I'm going to distrust you. I'm going to choose my own way. Where does that rebellion come from? Where does the violence come from? Where does the hatred come from? Where does the unforgiveness and the bitterness and the selfishness come from? Where does the disregard and the, the disconcern with the suffering of those around us come from? It comes from within you. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see this. Jesus is going to consistently... Over and over in this sermon, as we go into it, he's consistently pointing his finger to us and into our hearts, saying the sinful, the desire that it is inside of you is the problem. He's going to reveal it again and again and again. 
He says all this wickedness, all this brokenness in this world, it comes from the sin and the rebellion that's deep within you. But here's the good news. Jesus has a solution. His incredible claim in the Sermon on the Mount is that he's beginning something new. That starting not with the exceptional religious people, but starting with his followers, that he's beginning a new humanity. That he's creating something new in this world. Starting with the people who come to him with empty hands saying, Jesus, I'm broken. Jesus, I'm sinful. Jesus, I see your love and your goodness. Would you, would you love me? Would you teach me to follow you? Would you teach me what it means to be your disciple? And starting with those people, he's beginning to make salt and light. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's what Jesus is doing here. And it's these new creation followers of Jesus who are the anti-putrefaction agents of change in this world. They are the cure that Jesus has created. They're the cure that he sent on mission to affect change. So here's the question, though. We can say all of that, but what does that look like? If, if who we are as followers of Jesus is somehow part of this, this anti-putrefaction preserve, preservation element of this world, what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, it happens in the regular warp and woof of your life. In the regular day-to-day of your life, as you have experienced the love of Jesus as it's come and been shed into your hearts and you've been gripped by it. As you know his love and it's changed who you are. It's changing who you are and you, and you love others now differently because of how he's changed you. It's starting that way. It starts when, when we love him, when we know his love and when his love flows through us. We're his witnesses when we love our wives. We love our husbands. We love our roommates. Forgiving them as God in Christ has forgiven us. We're Jesus' witnesses when we care for one another and make peace with one another, forgiving our enemies and praying for those who oppose us because of the love of Christ that's been shed into our hearts. We're his witnesses when we care for the hurting because of the love that's been shown to us and that we show to others. We're his witnesses when we're unashamed about what the Bible teaches and we live it. How in love for God, in love for his righteousness, we proclaim And we live his good teaching of scripture. We're his witnesses when we adopt children out of awful situations and the hungry are fed and the vulnerable are protected because of the love of God that's been shown to us. We're his witnesses when we live biblical love for those who hate us. When we're unashamed about marriage and family and we live it. When we live biblical forgiveness towards those who even hate us and slander us. And when we open our homes and share the love that we have received from God with members of this church loving one another, opening our homes to those outside of the church and loving them with the love we've received from Christ. When we do these things and when we aren't ashamed to talk about it, we're living not in step with the world that's in rebellion towards God and on its way to destruction, but in love and obedience to King Jesus and in step with God's plan to make all things new. When we do that, brothers and sisters, when we do that, people notice it. It's a powerful witness to the God who saved us. It's a powerful witness to to what he's done to create something new in this world. And God uses that as an agent of preservation. But notice this. This is really important. So I think that's what's happening here with with the salt imagery. But there's a warning for us in the rest of verse 13. Did you see that? Look at verse 13 carefully with me. 
It says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What's interesting there is that in Greek, actually, it's not saying if the salt has lost its taste. It's saying if the salt has become foolish. If the salt has turned away from the blessed way of life in Jesus Christ, that's a foolish thing. And instead, recoils under pressure and starts to be diluted. It's in danger of being thrown out and trampled under people's feet, Jesus says. And this warning makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't that warning make sense? Doesn't Jesus know our hearts? Because what happens when opposition comes? When we experience pressure as Jesus witnesses in this world, what do we want to do? Don't we want to turn the volume down on Jesus? Slowly turn the volume down. Pull back from him. You know, Jesus, I don't want to be thought of as a bigot. Jesus, I don't want to be thought of as being out of step with my society. Jesus, maybe I'll just kind of quiet those those messages and that tone and not live my faithfulness to you. I want to pull back from that. But here's the thing. We don't serve the world by becoming like the world. Did you know that? We don't serve the world by becoming like the world. We serve the world by standing out, by having the flavor of salt in us, but being noticeably different as a preservation in this world, as those who follow Jesus, who've been changed by Jesus. So Jesus warns us to be a Christian at all is to publicly live out the whole person righteousness of Jesus in this world. Don't pull back. Now in the next verse, Jesus moves from his metaphor of salt to his metaphor of light. So look with me at our second point, light, and verses 14 to 16. Matthew 14, uh, 5, 14 to 16 says this. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. We're going to pick up the end there in a a moment. But I want to highlight this. I I think the metaphor of of light is a little bit more intuitive to us than the metaphor of salt. Is that right? I think we get this a little bit. Because we know, even in our society, we know that when you don't have light, you have darkness. Pretty apparent. That makes sense. Right? We know how it works. We don't, know real, we don't really know how salt works, but we know how light works. Right? But imagine this. In the ancient world, before there was uh, electric light, how much more poignant would this have been? In that world, when the sun set, there were no street lamps that came on. In that world, if you were to fly high in your fictitious satellite over the earth and take photographs of the dark portion of the earth, there would be no brilliant you know, lights showing where the cities of the world were. It would have been dark. As all you have were your your oil lamps as you were wandering around in those places. It would have been dark. But here's the thing. Light illuminates the darkness. Light makes things plain. Light shows us where to go and how to navigate. I'm sure you guys appreciate this when you're wandering around at nighttime trying to find the bathroom, you know, and and you're, you're bumping into things along the way. I'm this place of life right now where I, I constantly, even last night, I was walking to my bathroom and I, I'm trying not to wake up our daughter who sleeps in the bedroom with us right now. And in the dark, I'm stepping, stepping my feet on things and, you know, knocking things over and waking her up and it's terrible. And since she was up all night, all night last night, that was bad. It's my fault. Um, but light shows us the way to go. It shows us the way to go. It illuminates the darkness. But the question though is, what does that metaphor mean then? 
All right, so it illuminates what does that mean in respect to who we are and what God's doing in this world. Well, throughout Scripture, God's revelation about who we are and who he is and about how we are to live in this world, that revelation is regularly communicated through the metaphor of light. Who we are, who he is, and how we are to live throughout Scripture is regularly communicated through the metaphor of light. One example of that is from Psalm 119, verse 105. Look at these words. They're incredible. Your word, the word of God, the revelation of God into our darkness is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. You see, our problem as human beings is that we really don't know that much. Even with all the modern advances of our scientific age, we don't know that much. Who are we? Who are we as human beings? What were we made for? What's our purpose? Does following these desires that I have, will that lead to my flourishing and my blessing? Or will it, will it not? I mean, it feels good right now, maybe. I don't know. What about following these ones over here? Is this going to be good for me? I don't know that either. It's kind of an experiment. Well, let's just try one. And then it goes so well. Back up, try again. We're in the dark. On our own, this is basically an experiment of trying to figure out how to live our lives. But along comes God as the revealer, as the light giver. The metaphor of light is a metaphor communicating God's work in this world to teach us what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. It's God's work of revelation to guide us into what is right, to what is lovely, to what is pure. It's God's work of revelation in this world to show us how we ought to live as human beings that he's created. How to live in a way that leads to our flourishing and blessing and not in a way that leads to our destruction. And this is the amazing part because Jesus says here that it's his followers who publicly live out his whole person righteousness in this world. Jesus says they become the illuminating lights in this world. That they shine out into the darkness showing others where to go to find life. Where can you find life? Where can you find flourishing life? They shine out showing the way to go. It's in Jesus. The emissaries of Jesus' light are the Christians that he's created out of the darkness. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He says there in that passage, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be a blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Jesus' followers are witnesses in this world to the God-ordained, blessed, happy, and flourishing life that he's given us out of his grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And notice this. Jesus turns to his disciples who came to learn from him on the mountain, and he tells them this. He looks at his disciples and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That would have shocked them. That would have shocked them. You know why? Because in their world, in their day and age, they would have got something about how God had wanted to to use his people to be a a display of his glory and his goodness and, and the truth of his word. He would have got that, but they would have assumed that it wasn't them. They would have thought, you know, no, it's not us. It's those religious people. It's the people that are the the super good, externally looking good people that follow Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the light. They're the salt, not us, Jesus. 
And Jesus says, no, it's, it's you. You can imagine what that would have been like. They would have looked at one another, you know, who, you, you, me, it's us. Jesus says, it's you, my disciples, true Christians, those who have come to me to be changed by me, to become like me, to become humble like me, to be meek like me, to be righteous from the inside out like me, to be merciful like me, to be pure in heart like me, to be peacemakers like me, and to be persecuted like me. These ones, these will be my witnesses. Not Pharisees, not Sadducees, not scribes, but those who follow Jesus. They are the light. They are the salt. We need to hear those words this morning. Jesus spoke those words a long time ago, but 2,000 years later, he speaks them to you, Christ City. You are the light. You are the salt that God is using in Vancouver to display his glory and his goodness and to point the way to the flourishing life that's found in Jesus Christ. It's you. And Jesus exhorts us, then don't hide it. Don't cover it up. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. I've made you a city on a hill. Don't, don't hide it in the valley. I've made you the light on the lampstand. Don't put a basket over yourself. Shine brightly for my glory. Don't be ashamed of me. A lamp serves no purpose under a basket. You know, at this point, I want to address the elephant in the room, though. Because it occurs to me as I look at these passages that does this, does this sound arrogant and conceited? Is there a way that, that this passage looks arrogant and conceited? How conceited would someone have to be to wander on the streets of Vancouver thinking, I am the light of the world. I am the, the salt of the earth. Come to me. Like, if, if we did that, that's the kind of thing that, that would cause your family to like, send you off to the hospital. Right? Isn't that true? Isn't there a way that, that we can look at this that's just so arrogant and conceited and it, just, it strikes us as like, what is going on? What's with those Christians? You know, I think it would be conceited if. It would be conceited if these verses, if they pointed to us as the heroes of the story. But they don't. They point to Jesus. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Notice how Jesus says twice in verse 13... And in verse 14, it says, you are the salt. Verse 14, you are the light. That's really important. You know why? That shows us that Jesus isn't commanding his disciples to be something. He's describing something about them. He doesn't say be salty and be light. He says, you are salt. You are light. It's wildly important. It means Jesus isn't saying that we become salt and light by trying really hard. We become salt and light because Jesus in his grace and his love and his goodness reaches into our darkness and into our rottenness. And he makes salt and he makes light by his grace and by his love. Being salt and light, it's not about us being such amazing people. It's about a great God who has created something incredible out of the darkness. If we're salt and light, we've got to ask the question, where did that saltiness and where did that lightiness come from in the first place? <laughs> it didn't come from us. It came from Jesus. It's from Jesus. It's because of Jesus' death and resurrection that something amazing happens to us. So the Bible teaches that when we come to Jesus in faith, when we trust in Jesus to save us, God does something 
absolutely stunning with us. The Bible speaks of a miracle where we in our rottenness and our death have been then united with Jesus in his death. And then it dies with Jesus on the cross so that we can be resurrected into the life of Jesus' purity and goodness and grace and love. Who we are has died. So who we are in Jesus and his life can become alive in us, radically affecting and changing us. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 or 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jesus is doing something new with his people. Jesus is a light within us. It's his life. It's his light. It's his life that preserves and emanates from, of, from us. If we are different, it's his difference that makes the difference in us. If we're life in the midst of death and light in the midst of darkness and preservation in the midst of decay, it's because his life is being lived out through us by his grace. It's his life and his righteousness and his humility and his love, his endurance and suffering, his righteousness, his forgiveness of his enemies, his sacrifice and compassion and care for others. That's what's being lived through us. He's made it in us. He's living it through us. You see, this passage isn't about us being so amazing at all. It's about the miracle that Jesus has done to restore and to redeem humanity to be what God has always intended it to be. A reflection of his goodness. A reflection of his love. A witness to his glory and his grace. And notice who gets the praise. Notice who gets the praise in verse 16. It's not us. You see that? Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light shine before others. So be this, do this, live this, live as you are so that you may, so that they may see the world may see your good works and give glory to your father and give glory to your father who is in heaven. It's all about God. It's all about his goodness. It's all about his glory. But it is our purpose to bear witness to the miracle of his grace in our lives. As Jesus' followers, it's our privilege, it's our mission, it's our purpose. We get to shine the light on God. We get to point to him and say, look what God has done with me. God's changed me. This is the whole purpose of our testimonies, Christ. Some of us have been doing a lot of testimony sharing in our community groups. And some testimonies were shared at the women's event uh, last Sunday. Um, but the testimony's purpose is to shine the light on God. It's to give glory to Jesus to say, look what God has done. Look at how amazing he is. We get to invite the world through our testimonies to adore him, to worship Jesus, to praise him, and to love him as we love him and as we praise him. We get to call them to the true and flourishing life as human beings living in right relationship with God. I love how 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this. It says, but you are a chosen race. God chose you, Christ City. You who are followers of Jesus, you're the chosen race. You're the royal priesthood. You're the holy nation. A people that God has chosen for his possession. For a purpose. Do you see the purpose? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
So let me draw out some implications for us as we wrap this up this morning. How do you and I become more faithful in being light and being salt? Isn't the question then, how do we become more faithful in it? Well, I can't say this strongly enough. I've said it a couple times. I'm going to say it again. It's not by working harder and it's not by determining to be saltier. You can't make yourself do this. We become salt and light and live on mission for the glory of God in his city only if Jesus changes us to be saltier and lightier. It's only as Jesus changes us. The only way that that happens, the Bible teaches, is by beholding Jesus. It's by with the eyes of faith, seeing who he is and his love and his grace and worshiping him, adoring him, being confronted by his goodness as he increases in every way in our lives and we decrease. Paul says this. He says it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says it in these words. He says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And we all with unveiled face beholding Jesus, the glory of the Lord, as we see him, we are being transformed to be like Jesus into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. We become like Jesus by seeing Jesus with the eyes of faith. The miracle here is that as we come to know Jesus, he changes us to be like him. That's wonderful. That's awesome. That's what salt and light is really about. It's about becoming like Jesus and showing him off in our lives to the world around us. So if it's about that, if that's how this is happening, then is there anything that we can do? I mean, there's a lot of doers in the room. Like, what can we get down to do? Well, there's a couple of things. There's a couple of things. First, we need to pursue Jesus. Look, you can't start the fire. This is something that God does. You can't, you can't ignite the renewal and the work of God by yourself. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But you can lay kindling. You can't step into, you can step into the avenues where he's working by his grace and by his spirit. To commit yourself to the avenues where his grace and his spirit are at work and pray and call it upon him to do something in your life. So what can you do if you want to pursue Jesus and become this salt and this light and this new creation in this world? Well, read the Bible. Open your Bible. Read the Bible every day. Love the word of God. And pray. Pray for God to be at work. Pray for God to work powerfully by his Holy Spirit to do what he's always done in all of human history, to take people out of the darkness and out of rottenness and bring them into to light, into his righteousness. Pray that that would happen in your life personally. Pray that would happen more and more as you die to sin and live to his righteousness. Pray that that would happen to our church, that we become a church that is deeply in love with Jesus. So that we would increase in shining the light of his love outward into this world in Vancouver. Pray for Vancouver. Pray that we'd be good witnesses in Vancouver. That Vancouver would see something in us that shows something about Jesus. And here's another thing. You know, pursuing Jesus is not an individual sport. I think we think sometimes that, that doing this is an individual sport. It's not. This is a team sport. Pursuing Jesus is a team sport. Pray with others. Read the Bible with others. One of the highlights of my week every week is getting together with people and reading the Bible and praying with them. But you don't have to be a pastor to do that. You don't have to feel like you perfectly understand what you're reading even to do that. Pick the book of Matthew, pick Ephesians, pick Colossians, pick something 
And every week, open up with somebody one chapter, read it, ask simple questions like, what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about who we are before God? How can we live as followers of Jesus in light of this passage? Talk about it and pray about it and go on your way. We need to encourage one another together. We need to walk with Jesus together in order to kindle a flame in our hearts. The Holy Spirit will use to cause us to be bright witnesses and lights for Jesus. Encourage one another. Love one another well this way. We want to help one another in this church follow Jesus so we become more like him. And the second response to this passage is this. The first one, pursue Jesus with all your heart. The second one is this. Learn to live who you already are. If this is Jesus' work, and if he said over his followers, those who have faith in Jesus, that you are the light, that you are the salt, then we just need to become and live what we are. We need to live what we are. That means that we, we can't hide the light. We shouldn't hide the light. We must live it out. Jesus warns us that diluting the salt or hiding the light will just make us foolish and useless and in danger of being trashed. Live what you are with boldness and with confidence in Christ. To live who we are means that we must trust and learn to be increasingly faithful representations of Jesus in this world. Don't hide it. Don't hide who he is. Don't hide how he's changed you. Live your life regularly and boldly and publicly to share the good news about Jesus. You know that we exist for this as a church, Christ City. One of our values is this, that we exist to make opportunities for people to encounter Jesus. Don't pull back from that. In all the regular happenings of your life and in your workplace, here on a Sunday and beyond, be bold. Live confidently about Jesus. Testify to him. I I love the way that 1 Peter 3.15 communicates its regular, surprising faithfulness of Christians in this world. He says this. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's not a surprising witness. It's just a regular witness of being who you are in Christ and being ready and prepared to speak about it to others. You see, being salt and light, I think we can have a a misplaced view of this. It's not grabbing a pair of binoculars and being like, I'm going to spy out the sin of this world and I'm going to wear a billboard that exposes it and wander around in the streets of Vancouver. It's not that. It's just being a faithful Christian, living your daily walk with Jesus in this city and being willing to speak of it. Being willing to point the finger to him. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. So, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Can we pray about this? Father, we come before you and we ask that in your goodness, in your kindness, in your love to us, that you would, you would renew our hearts. That you would restore the love that we once had for you. Maybe it's grown cold. So that we burn brightly as your witnesses here in Vancouver. Lord, would you cause us, those of us who've been maybe ashamed just feeling the pressure and the burden from this world to not stand up for Jesus. Make us bold. Make us love him so much more than we love anything that we could lose as a result of testifying about him. Cause us to love his glory more than the fear of becoming embarrassed about him. 
Lord, make us faithful. Make us salt and make us light and do something powerful here in Vancouver. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.